Well, the passage I would like to call your attention to this morning will be found in Amos 5. Amos 5. Continuing our time in the book of Amos, taking it a chapter at a time before we get to Advent, and we'll be reminded that Christ, God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. But today, we are in Amos 5. Amos 5. Amos 5, starting in verse 1, we read. Listen to this message that I am singing for you. A lament, house of Israel. She has fallen. Virgin Israel will never rise again. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to raise her up. For the Lord God says, the city that marches out as a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. And the one that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left in the house of Israel. For the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel or go to Gilgal, or journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into exile, and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. Those who turn justice into wormwood also throw righteousness to the ground. The one who made Pleiades and Orion, who turns darkness into dawn and darkens day into night, who summons the water of the sea and pours it out over the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. He brings destruction on the strong and it falls on the fortress. They hate the one who can fix the guilty at the city gate and they despise the one who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the house cut of stone you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, and deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such time, for the days are evil. Pursue good and not evil so that you may live. And the Lord God of armies will be with you as you have claimed. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice at the city gate. Perhaps the Lord God of armies will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord, the God of armies, the Lord says there will be wailing in all the public squares. They will cry out in anguish in all the city streets. The farmer will be called to mourn and the professional mourners will wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass among you. The Lord has spoken. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise 
your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offering and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fatted cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have taken up with Sakath, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, images you have made for yourselves. I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The Lord God of armies is his name. He has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truth on our hearts this morning. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that we have your instruction in sentence form in our language, in our hands, that we might know you, that we might know how to live in light of your word, and that we might know Christ. Father, I pray for us in the next few minutes. God, I pray that you would have your work in each of our hearts. Guard my mouth. Guard the ears of these people. That if anything unprofitable or unfaithful would come from my mouth, that it would fall away, God. But let your truth remain in their hearts. Work in each life according to their need, according to your will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amos can be a hard book to swallow. Can it not? I just about imagine that if you've sat in these pews for the last few weeks and listened to Amos, you have undoubtedly had a hard time with the message at points. We have I've seen that this message would have undoubtedly been hard for the original audience to swallow. They are rebels against the holy God and they are hearing about their rebellion. If you're a true Christian, you have probably struggled with some sin. You've struggled with some area. You've struggled with some area of rebellion in your life that you need to repent of. You've probably been confronted with the holiness of God and seen where you fall short and where you need to endeavor to do better. We've been reminded that God sees our hearts and that He is not fooled. If you're a nominal Christian, you probably found yourself upset at some point. I get it. You probably claim this is not what people need to hear, right? You've said this is not the message that the church should be preaching. People are hurting. We're not in the Old Testament. People need to hear about love. People need to be encouraged and hearing about God's holiness and our sin. Well, that's just, that's not encouraging. Well, friends, whether you are a Christian in name only, or never have professed Christ, today I want you to see, or whether you are a true Christian, we need to be reminded that true life is only found in Christ. There's no salvation in encouraging someone in sin. There's no salvation in comforting a rebel with lies that God will not judge. Or neglecting portions of God's Scripture because they are hard. You know, the Bible is not a buffet. We don't just pick out the parts we like and leave the Brussels sprouts, right? We take it all. We, want it, we, we are taking it all. 
And we must be reminded of our sin and God's holiness, and we are called to holy life. As I watched last night a a documentary with my wife uh, and and a pastor over in England said this, he says, to claim to be gospel-centered, I'm paraphrasing him, to claim to be gospel-centered and to live an unholy life is to make a nonsense of the gospel. So we have to look at passages like this. We have to be confronted with our sin, unapologetically so, because God has given it to us for our good. As the old preacher saying goes, without an understanding of the bitterness of our sin, we do not understand the sweetness of the gospel. If the only message we have is that you're pretty good people, but Jesus can make you a little bit better, then Jesus really isn't that great. But maybe you find yourself thinking this morning, I have sinned too greatly. I've messed up too much. I'm too broken. I've been faking it so long that true repentance seems embarrassing. I can't, I, I can't profess true faith now. People will laugh at me. I've been going to this church for five years, ten years, fifty years. Maybe you're thinking the sin you're hiding is just so great that we would ostracize you and that God would not forgive you. Well, one of my favorite books ever is Ian Murray's two volumes biography on Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You know, this week we heard from one of our brother pastors in Juno's that one of his favorite gifts his wife ever got him was a 270. Um, His gift is probably cooler to most of y'all than my favorite gift. But my wife gave me that for Christmas about five years ago or so, and I read it over the course of the year, and it's still one of my favorite books. And I remember this story. And it was a story about a man over in England in the 1950s. And although he had professed Christ, he did not honor the Lord. He didn't live in a way that honored the Lord. He actually left his wife and kids. He abandoned them and went to live with a woman in London. And after a time of living with this woman and squandering everything they had, she left him because he ran out of money. And so he went to the the Thames River that runs there through London, and he was going to throw himself in. He was going to end his life. And he stood on looking down at that water, and he heard Big Ben strike. You know, Big Ben, he's on the Westminster Bridge. The Thames River runs through London, Big Ben's over here, and he hears Big Ben strike, and he realizes that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is about to start preaching at Westminster, and he thought, well, you know, might as well go hear what he has to say, and then I can, then I can take my own life. So he walked the, the six or so minutes to Westminster Chapel, and as he walked in, Martin Lloyd-Jones, is, he's praying his pastoral prayer, and the very words he prayed right when this man walked in were this, Lord, have mercy on the backslider. And because of those words, because of what he heard as he walked in, the Lord restored him that day. And Ian Murray reports that this man lived a faithful life for many more years until he was triumphantly taken home as a faithful Christian. I say all that to say, whatever sin you think we'd ostracize you for that God cannot forgive, friends, God is merciful to those who truly repent. He is faithful to forgive. There is no one too far gone. So friends, no matter your background, your generation, your age, your ethnicity, your affiliation, life is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this passage we read today 
We can't walk through every verse, it's too long, but what we will see is the ugliness of our sin and the beauty of repentance. The ugliness of our sin and our rebellion against a holy God and the beauty of humbly confessing and turning back to Him. Because right now, Israel needs some repentance, right? Like we read this passage, and if anybody needs some repentance right now, it's Israel. They still claim to be the people of God, right? Like we see that in, uh, I think it's uh, verse 14, he says, then I will be the Lord God of armies that you claimed that I am. You claim I'm your God. Well, I will actually be if you turn and repent. So they claim to be God's people, but they're not following Him. They do not like His instruction. They don't love God as they should. They don't love others as they are commanded to love others. They've included idols in their worship now. And God calls Amos, this faithful servant, this bivocational pastor, this sheep herder, calls him from Tekoa to go north and to preach to these people, these disobedient rebel people. And Amos starts this chapter with a song of lament. He starts it with what would be an ancient funeral song. Right? So they would have known what he's doing. There's a pattern here. There's a chiasm in it, which we won't go into because uh, we don't have all the time. But it, it's written in such a way that when you heard it, you would have known this is a funeral song. This is songs people sing at funeral. So in other words, it's almost like if I came up here, if you were Israel and I was Amos in our context, it'd almost be like if I came up here with two funeral wreaths and said, all right, now you dead people, this is your funeral. You think that wasn't an offensive message? They would have been all kind of offended as he was singing to them a funeral message. This chapter begins with fallen Israel, and we are meant to think of, of them as fallen, and it begins and it reminds us death comes because of sin. Just look at the first two verses. We read, listen to this message I am singing for you, a lament, house of Israel. She has fallen. Virgin Israel will never rise again. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to rise, raise her up. You know, as we read that, we think about other people, but as they would have heard that song, he would have been talking about them. And we see that this passage teaches us about the ugliness of sin because rebellion against God and rebellion against His instruction, against His Word, it is sin, my friends. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the house is cut of stone that you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. We see here that God's given his people his instruction. They're just not following it. Instead, they're choosing to trample, to oppress, to bribe, to deprive other people. Remember, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we are called to what? We are called to love God and to love our neighbors ourselves. Old and new. Love God, love people. And by failing to love people as God has called, we are failing to obey God. So far, we've seen Israel's neglected their obligation to the poor. They've neglected God's statutes. They have celebrated their wealth. They, they, they have taken advantage of others. They have threatened the prophets. The men have had degenerate sexual relationships. The women lay around grazing on the plenty and disrespecting their husbands. We've seen all those things. 
depravity, sin, iniquity, rebellion over and over again, yet they have God's instruction. What tensions in your life do you have between doing what the Bible says and what you want to do? Well, I want to do this, but the Bible says this. Well, in most American evangelicalism, which one ends up getting pushed aside? It's not our want to, is it? Friends, we can find a way to excuse ourselves from obeying God's Word. You can find a church that will let you do what you want to do. The easier messages to hear. You can find a shortcoming in the person holding you accountable and focus on their sin. Instead, it's kind of that defensive blocking like it's your high school girlfriend. Or you can humble yourself and you can find your way back to God through repentance. Because Israel's excused their sin. They've excused the things they're doing, yet they claim to be God's people. And their worship is artificial. Look with me at verses 20 and 23 through 23. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Last week we, we read uh, this sarcastic interaction where God is sarcastically mocking the worship of, uh, of the Israelites. Remember he says, come on, to, come on to Bethel and make your sacrifices and rebel. Come on to Gilgal, rebel even more. Keep doing what you want to do. Remember, he, that's the way it's worded there. Keep on, do what you want to do. That's what you want to do, you do it. But it's rebellion. And this week we read God states bluntly, I can't stand the stench of your gatherings. Even when they offer their burnt offerings, they're going through the motions. He says, I won't accept it. He says, take away the sound of your music. I don't want it. I don't want your praise and worship song. I don't care how many choruses you sing. I don't want it. Why? Because your hearts are far from me. You're artificial. You're fake. You're not acting like the people of God are supposed to, so I don't care about your rote, going through the motion stuff. No God. What does a passage like this say about the average American church service? This week I, sh I shared a little clip of a pastor who was quoting R.C. Sproul and he says, what is a common denominator of most American church services? And he said this, God isn't present. But if we don't talk about that, if we have better coffee, if we have better songs, if we have lights that will dim, and we have fog machines, and we have better music, we can get more people, Right? I once talked to a church planner in Kansas who said that he was planning a church and people want music. People want the good music. And so he said what he did is he went to the local bar and hired guitarists. So they didn't, weren't believers. So they played at the bar until three in the morning and then came a few hours later and played at the church. And he said, 
that's what you got to do to grow a church. Is it? If we believe this passage, it wouldn't seem that that's what God wants. God tells the Israelites, take away your music. I'm not going to listen to your songs. Why? Because their worship is corrupted. It's not genuine. They are not the true people of God. Sinclair Ferguson said true biblical worship would be like a cold shower in the middle of the night to most American churches. God tells us how He wants to be worshipped. We are to follow Him with hearts that genuinely loved Him. But our hearts are corrupted by sin. Look at verse 10. They hate the one who convicts the guilty at the gate, and they despise the one who speaks with integrity. Israel hates anyone who calls out sin. Right now, Israel hates anyone who convicts the guilty. They despise someone who speaks with integrity. What about us? How do we like it when someone speaks bluntly? Or do we want someone to schmooze us a little bit? Do we want someone in the local church to schmooze us into honoring God? Or do we want someone who, as the Bible says, reasons frankly with us? Someone who convicts says that's sin. They say, but God is love. He is. But the Bible says, let your love be genuine. True love desires that that person is in right standing with a holy God. And God desires that we be in right standing with Him. And sin cannot come before the presence of a holy God. So when we affirm sin by saying God is love, we make a nonsense of God's character. When we say that the killing of babies is not murder, it's a choice, we make a nonsense of who God is. God is love, but He does not accept our sins. And an evil society that hates God hates anyone who talks about sin or guilt. Friends, if you speak with integrity, if you speak truth, buckle up. Buckle up. Prepare to be hated. If you speak truth at the workplace, in the gym, at dinner, now you can stay silent and you can justify it in your mind saying, well, I'm going to build this relationship first and maybe in some cases that's okay. But I think it's also a very easy way for us to not honor God. And if you declare truth among an idolatrous people, friends, buckle up. The next thing we see is that idols are sin. Look with me at verse 26. But you have taken up with Sakath, your king, and Kaiwan, your star guide, images you have made for yourselves. So Israel's biggest problem in this, in this passage, as we see, is not that they're not doing their sacrifices. Right? It's not that they're not bringing the right lambs. It's not that they're not coming to temple. It's not that they're not doing the stuff. It's that their hearts aren't for the true, one true and living God. They have idols in there. They have other things on the throne. They're going through the motions but they've rejected the covenant of God by worshiping other things. They have worshiped star gods rather than, if you look at verse 9, 
the one who created the stars. Think about that for a moment. God made, I'm sorry, verse 8, God made the constellation of Pleiades and Orion, and yet they're worshiping Succoth and Kaiwan. The Saturn God is known in other places. Now, I had never heard of the Pleiades until this week. Uh, I knew Orion. I, we use that in the army sometimes when we were trying to uh, locate uh, Orion's belt. It's really easy to find. But I had never heard of Pleiades, and I read this passage, and then I went out in the living room at lunchtime, and we had lunch with the kids, and then Sarah was reading Mary Poppins to the kid, and Pleiades came up in that. And so then we started searching, trying to figure out how to say all the names of the seven sisters and stuff. And so that is a rabbit trail that part of me kind of wants to go down, but I know it, we can't. But the point is, is that in lots of cultures, they know about Pleiades, and they know about Orion, and God made them. And the Israelites are worshiping a star. A star. They're worshiping a thing. They're worshiping something that God made rather than the one who made it. In Romans 1.25, we read that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what had been created instead of the Creator. Nothing new under the sun, right? It's exactly what we see happening here. The Saturn God rather than the star maker. God's instructions ignored. Instruction is ignored. The truth is hated. The creation is worse of other than the creator. Nothing new under the sun. Amos or Romans or 2023. What takes the place of God in your heart? What thing do you lift up instead of God in your heart? Because running from God doesn't help. Look at verse 19. It will be like a man, the judgment day. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. God essentially says here in this verse, like, you can't run. You can't run from me. We've already seen he sees our hearts. He knows right now to how you are responding to his word, or he knows right now if you're even in the same room with us or if you're thinking about where you're going to have for lunch, how do you think you're going to hide from him? Where are you going to go? He says you escape a lion only to have a bear snatch you up. All right, you wrestle your way out of that bear and you get home and you lean against the wall and a snake bites you. God's everywhere. Chapter 3 is clear. There's nowhere you can go. God's judgment is certain. How many of us in this room think we're getting away with something? I know you do because I do sometimes. I think, man, in my heart, I'm really frustrated at that guy. But he doesn't know it. But God does. It's almost like God saying, I'm the ultimate sniper. You can run if you want to. You just die tired. There's nowhere we can get away from him. It's an undeniable fact. God's sin brings judgment, and that sin brings loss. Look with me at verse 3. For the Lord God says, The city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left, and the one that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left in the house of Israel. One of my favorite stories in uh, history in World War II is Dunkirk. 
right? Some of you may be familiar. As, as one preacher said, it's a story of where everything seemed dark and God's providence intervened and hundreds and hundreds of British fathers sail across the channel in fishing boats, the same thousands and thousands of British sons. And they get the army off of the continent of Europe to be able to fight again against the evil Nazi regime. There's this movie that came out a few years ago, and I was still in seminary, about Dunkirk, and I watched it, and the opening scene is this. There's a squad moving through the town of Dunkirk, and all of a sudden that squad takes contact, and you'll see guys dropping one by one by one by one by one in this opening scene, and finally only one guy makes it to the beach. And that's what we see here. Because of their sin, because of their, their, their rebellion, God will bring judgment, and the thousands will become hundreds, and the hundreds will become tens. Who do they think they're rebelling against? The star god? Or the one who made them? Rebellion against God's friend, it brings tragic loss. It brings judgment. And we see here that Israel has turned from God. They have turned from His instruction. And not just turned from Him, but run to idols. They have corrupted the truth. What does that mean? What is sin? What is depravity? What does that mean for us? Well, friends, sin is a universal deformity of human nature found at every point of a person, according to J.I. Packer. Total depravity means that sin has corrupted every bit of our being. There is no part of us that is pure. Ever since the fall of Eden, every single one of us is born dead in sin. We all have a sin nature. Packer again says, sin may be defined as a lack of conformity to the law of God in act, habit, attitude, outlook, disposition, motivation, and mode of existence. All of us. It's not just our actions. It's even what's in our heart. We are born defiled. We are born separated from a holy God. We are born guilty, and because of that, we deserve eternal death. And not only do we deserve it because we're born that way, we actively disobey as well. It's part of our nature. Every day. And one of the strangest things I encounter is when we try to justify it, but we've all done it. Even people who claim to be the people of God. I deserve to be happy. It's not that big a deal. What about your sin, Pastor? Well, we're not talking about my sin at the moment. It is a big deal, and God desires that you be holy, not happy. God desires not that we would justify our sin, but that we would turn from it. So the second thing in this passage we see is is also the beauty of repentance, of turning from sin, and turning to a God that brings mercy. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. Pursue good and not evil so that you may live. And the Lord God of armies will be with you as you have claimed. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice at the city gate. Perhaps the Lord God of armies will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. We'll stop there and not go to 16. Whereas... Sin may be defined by Packer as a lack of conformity to the law of God and act and habit and attitude and outlook, disposition, motivation, and existence. Repentance 
is turning from that sin and turning to God. Repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, one's values, one's goals, and one's ways are changed and our whole life is lived differently. Turning to God through the power of the Spirit, through the blood of Christ, so that there is a noticeable difference. Remember what that guy in England said at the beginning, to claim to be gospel-centered, yet to live in an unholy way is to make a nonsense of the gospel. I believe what he means there is that the gospel has power to change, and for us to live the same shows that we have not experienced the gospel or that the gospel is powerless. Repentance is not us merely saying, sorry, God, until the next time. Repentance is us turning from that rebellion and turning to God. And through His power, obediently seeking to serve Him. Look at verses 4 and 6. For the Lord says to the, Lord, to the house of Israel, seek me and live. And then in verse 6, He says again, seek the Lord and live. It does not say, affirm me and live. It does not say, affirm God. Don't affirm you know, Islam. Affirm God of the Bible and then do what you want and live. It says, seek me. Remember that Israel affirmed God. They did not obey Him. They claimed to be the people of God, but they did not live for Him. They did not love Him as they were called. Throughout this passage, throughout this book, we find a people who claim to be God's people, yet living in disobedience. Verse 15 shows us that the true people of God hate evil and love good. Verse 15 shows us that the true people of God establish justice. Those who experience God's love love God. They determine to try to obey Him, albeit fallible, this side of eternity. And when we think about the themes that we've seen here, when we think about light, I didn't talk about it a lot, but you probably notice it a lot. God is the one who makes the dawn. God is the one who makes the stars, right? We see in here, uh, he says, what will the day of judgment be for you? Will it not be darkness instead of light? We know that throughout Scripture, light is identified with God, right? Like he is a pillar of fire by night. He is the flaming pot in the Abrahamic covenant. Light is identified with God. So when I think about light and think about following God, I think about John 18, John 8, 12. Turn with me to chapter John, to Gospel of John, I can't talk. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12. John, chapter 8, verse 12. Just one verse. John, chapter 8, verse 12, we read, Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness but will have the light of life. Christ says, I, I am the light of the world. All this light that we talk about, the light that we're going to talk about a lot during Advent, when we talk about joy that is dawned, uh, that will be a huge theme in Advent. This light, Christ says, it's me. I am the light of the world. 
God is the one who makes it dawn. He is the bringer of light. He makes the stars. Light's associated with God. In Psalm 27, 1, the Israelites were trained to sing. You talk about singing, right? Now we see the Israelites are trained to sing, the Lord is my light, my salvation. We read in Revelation 21 that one day Christ will be the light. Jesus Christ is the true light. He is not a false star God. He is the light, the light that we sing about. If you want to live, you must follow this light. Follow Christ. Not just affirm Christ, but seek Him. Follow Him. Follow Christ and live. So one application, if you're not a visitor with us today, you know normally here I say, all right, well, here's 12 ways we can live in light of this passage. I got one today. Seek Christ. Follow Christ. Whether you've been a believer for decades or a nominal Christian faking it, or this is the first time you've ever heard the gospel, friends, seek Christ. Follow Christ. Follow the light of the world. What rebellion, what sin, what transgression of God's law do you need to confess and then kill? What idol do you need to tear down? Sports? Popularity? Being the one that everyone likes? Recreation, money, beauty, fishing gear? What thing has taken the place of God in your heart where you are to have God as the highest thing in all of your life? What thing has taken that place? What thing would you rather serve? Would you rather think about than God? What have you allowed to pull you away from Him? Remember, it's not that you stop coming to church and start worshiping crystals. Well, don't do that. But that's not Israel's ultimate problem. They're still going through the motions. What thing is pulling us away? Like the man on the Westminster Bridge, friend, if you have strayed from God, come back. Repent. Turn back to Him. He is merciful and kind to forgive. Friend, if you're struggling right now with this series, if you're struggling with Amos, the problem is not ultimately the book of Amos. It's not that book of Amos at all. And it's probably not ultimately the series. While I'm sure that there are men that could preach it better than me. The ultimate issue is that we have some sin in our life that we don't want confronted with the holiness of God. You can say this isn't what we need right now. You can say we just need to be encouraged. You can say all those things. I've heard them a thousand times. But the ultimate issue is not the series, and it's not the book. It's that we don't want the holiness of God putting a spotlight on that thing in our life. If you struggle with the message of Amos, this is my exhortation to you. I said there's only one point application. I guess there's two. If you struggle with Amos, go home, prayerfully read through this book. Connect the points with the New Testament and see that the New Testament does not soften our call to obedience and holiness to God. And if you can honestly say, if you can read through Amos, if you can honestly read through it and say, I have no sins to repent of, then after you repent of pride, pray for the rest of us. Because I guarantee you, we as a church need to hear 
the holiness of God and be reminded of our fallenness and our struggle with sin. The Old Testament people, God, were to follow God's instruction and love one another. They were to love God, love his people. What are we called to do? Christ says, they will know you are my people because you follow my instructions. He also says, they will know you are my people because of your love for one another. It has not changed. Rather than excuse our rebellion and excuse our selfishness, let us be a people who continually run back to God. Let Whitecliff Church be known as a people who continually conform our thought and our minds to His Word and repent and run back to Him. In this passage, we find the ugliness of our rebellion and yet the beauty of repentance and turning to a holy God. Sin has separated you from God. Reconciliation is found in Christ. Sin has sentenced you to death. Life is found in Christ. Sin has robbed you on your joy. But true joy is only found in Jesus Christ. It does not matter your background. It does not matter what you have done. Friends, turn to Christ and find life. And then don't stop turning to Him. Every day. I have to repent every day. If you need one person to say, it's me, I have to repent every day. So do you, I know. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace, but also thank you for your holiness. God, we praise you for, we could just praise you for everything, but God, we praise you for the grace and the mercy that you have shown us in Christ Jesus that we can even pray to you and call you Father now. Father, I lift up the one here who struggles with sin. I lift up to you the Christian who struggles with your holiness, God. I pray that you would show them, give them eyes to see that you are more to be desired than anything in the world. And that you would grant them repentance. And that they would turn from whatever it is, whatever trinket, whatever trite thing that they are following and turn to you. Father, for the lost person here, God, I pray that you would break their hearts and that they would, they would run to you, that you would grant them no sleep until they turn to you, not because we don't love them, but because we do. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.